Give it up for old Lou this morning. Lou brought the word, didn't he? Can we do one more? Can we just give it up for the choir? Didn't they do awesome today? Man, I'm telling you what. Yes, sir. Well, the Lord has been with us this whole weekend. This is our fourth service. For those of you who may not know, we have a church that is also in Goldsboro that meets on Thursday night. We literally do Sunday morning on Thursday night. And so if, you, uh, if that's a more convenient time for you, some of you work on the weekend, if you'll come out to the bridge, it's right there off Berkeley Boulevard at Junction uh, um, Shopping Center. Berkeley Junction Shopping Center there where uh, Delmas Bridgers Hardware is. We'd love to have you guys. Same sermon series, uh, same good music, same good coffee, same kids ministry. And so we hope you'll come out and visit with us at the bridge sometime. For those of you who don't know what in the world is going on around here, we're building a 1,200-seat sanctuary right back there. And uh, we appreciate your patience during the time when we're doing all of this uh, building and expanding the kingdom and extending the embrace of Jesus to our community and to the world around us. We're very blessed today to have a very, very special guest with us. We've been trying to work it out for a while and little things would come up, but he's here with us today. I'll tell you just a little bit about Bishop Dr. Ronald W. Carpenter Sr. And I'll tell you something, I thought about it. he's a doctor and here I am, your pastor, and I ain't even a nurse. And that's just <laughs> terrible. Um, he's the general superintendent of the International Pentecostal Holiness Church. Let me tell you what state he's from. He's from North Carolina. Isn't that awesome? From the city of Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Accepted God's call into the ministry when he was 16 years old. And you know, I got to thinking about that, Bishop. You like me, I, I went in ministry when I was 17. I sure hope they don't fire me because I don't know how to do nothing else, do you? And I uh, thought about that when I saw where you'd gone in at age 16. And um, uh, he, he served 11, as a senior pastor for 11 years uh, in, and also as conference superintendent in the Upper South Carolina Conference, was elected executive director of Evangelism USA, served there for 12 years. Uh, Bishop Carpenter uh, is the, um, a man with a great desire to serve the kingdom of God in any way he can. And i got to tell you, Millie and I have had the opportunity to spend some time uh, with he and Miss Nan this weekend. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm saying this, church, I'll say it next weekend when he's not here, one of the most down-to-earth uh, couples, one of the most down-to-earth uh, people that I've ever been around. Just love being around them and talking with them and just wish we had had so much more time together. And we will. We'll, we'll eventually have that. But he's in demand for revivals and seminars and camp meetings and uh, leadership training and all other kinds of speaking engagements, and we're just blessed to have him here with us today. Miss Nan, I'm going to ask you if you will stand this time. I should have done that in the other service. Just wave at everybody, because we know behind every good man is a what? Better woman. That's right. That's right. Now, they got two children and five grandchildren. And you may know one of their children because his name's Ron Carpenter Jr. And he pastors a little church down in Greenville, South Carolina, a little church they started back there about 20 years ago with 17,500 members. He's on, he's on, it comes on TBN and has a, a show, I believe it's on here on Friday evenings. Uh, used to be, uh, I know, and uh, uh, just a ma an incredible man of God and uh, just celebrated 20 years there 
Uh, we, have, we have Papa with us today, though, and he taught Junior everything he knows, I'm telling you, and we're just honored today. I want you to make the man of God welcome today. Would you stand to your feet? Can we honor our bishop today as he comes to bring the word of God to us? Bishop, we love you. Whitley Church loves you, Bishop. I was up in uh, Columbus, Ohio some time ago, preached and had a great service and I was standing at the door doing my pastoral thing when everybody was walking out and this lady came by and she said, oh, Brother Carpenter, that was a great word. I enjoyed it. It blessed me. I just wish my daughter had been here to hear it. She said, I tried to get her to come and I told her Ron Carpenter was preaching she said, is it senior or junior? I told her, I don't know. He's about my age. She said, ah, oh, that's the old man. I don't want to hear him. <laughs> uh, I just want you to know this is big Ron. Little Ron is six foot two. was sitting in the den one night years ago and the phone rang and I heard my son pick it up in the kitchen and a little bit he said, now who do you want to talk to? You want to talk to Big Ron or you want to talk to Little Ron? He said, this is Little Ron, but if you want Big Ron, I'll go get him for you. I said, my Lord, if the guy on the other end of that phone could see Little Ron and Big Ron, he'd think he's in the twilight zone. It's been such a joy to be here. We have worked on this thing for about two years trying to uh, get some compatible dates. I'm a great admirer of your pastoral couple. Farrell Hardison is an outstanding man of God. He's a great visionary and... <laughs> I was gonna make you do that in a minute, just anyway. I'm still gonna make you do it. But we've known one another for several years. Actually though, not closely acquainted, just knew one another at a distance and who we were. And in the last uh, three or four years, I've got to know his heart. You know, you know people three ways. You know people hand to hand, face to face, and heart to heart. And a lot of folk, you know, you shake their hand, you greet them, and you pass on, maybe never will see them again. Uh, some other folk, you know them face to face, you know a little bit about them, where they come from, some of their issues. But then there are a few people in this life that you know heart to heart. You really know what's inside of them. You know how they feel. You know what they think. And I think he and I have spent enough time together, both on the phone and, and personally, that I really know something about his heart. And you see his heart. Do you realize this church is an amplification of the heart of its pastor? If a man goes to a church and assumes what somebody else has left, for the first couple of years, he can always say, well, I inherited this. And then when you've been somewhere two or three years and you got a problem, all you can do is point your finger in the mirror like this because that church becomes a reproduction of the heart of its pastor. So I'm not surprised when I come to this campus and I see everything that you're doing
when you're having four services a week, most churches can't keep the doors open to have one. When you're building a 1,200-seat sanctuary and other groups are merging together so they can salvage something, because I know the heart behind the vision that's driving this ministry. And the greatest thing God can give any organization, whether it's 200, 2,000, or 2 million, doesn't matter, is good leadership. Because a leader is like the thermostat on the wall. Uh, whatever you set that thermostat at, that's as high as it's going to get in here. And the leader establishes the temperature of the vision. And no organization will rise above the vision of its leader. So I just commend you for your good taste in being part of the Whitley Church. It tells me that you are a selective person. You're not given to wasting your time. And for Sunday or Thursday or Saturday, when you go to church, you go expecting something that will minister to your needs. And you leave with that. That's why you keep coming back. So I salute you as a congregation today. This is the second time this morning I've stood up here to a church basically full. And uh, thank you, Pastor. Nothing happens until somebody sees it first. And you're here because God put it in his heart and he saw that. He saw this. You're part of a vision. And together, it takes two great things to make a church grow. Number one, a pastor that wants it to grow and is willing to do what's necessary to make it grow. And then it takes a congregation who's willing to follow. Because no matter how great the pastor is, he can't do it by himself. So I commend you, and the pastor, I commend you. Thank you for your great vision. And as I said earlier in the service, I've noticed in being around him, every time I try to give him a compliment, he has difficulty receiving it. And you know, that's really a sign of great greatness. Great people never think of themselves as great people. It's other folks who consider them great. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, well, I think I'll go out and be great today. What do they do? They just get out and they do what's in them. It's the other people who recognize that as greatness. But every time I try to give him a compliment, he defers and he says, yeah, but I got such a great team. God's given me such wonderful people around me that make it happen. Uh, they're so creative, so innovative. And I think, yeah, that's another sign of a great leader. He knows how to build a team and empower the people around him to reach their potential. Ephesians 4 tells us that Jesus gave to the church See, the, the Trinity is a giver. God the Father gave his Son, and through his Son, he gives eternal life. The Holy Spirit gives us the gifts, the manifestation gifts and the ministry gifts. But Jesus the Son gives us something too. When he ascended up on high, he gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, 
and teachers. Those are the gifts that Jesus himself gave to the church. But you notice the gifts that Jesus gave are actually gifted people. Jesus gave gifted people to the church so that the church could be everything God wanted it to be. And one of those gifted offices is the office of pastor. The apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, and the teacher. They can come and go. They're itinerant. There's only one of those five offices that comes to stay. And that's the pastor. And Jensen Franklin asked Tommy Barnett one time, Jensen Franklin's got that little 6,000 person church in Gainesville, Georgia. Tommy Barnett's got that little 32,000 person church out in Phoenix. And Jensen Franklin asked Tommy Barnett, how do you build a great church? And Jensen was all ready to take notes. He had his pen and paper. Tommy Barnett looked at him and said, stay. That's all. Stay. There's something to be said for staying. When you realize that the average pastorate in America is 9 to 12 months. If you take all the churches and average them together, the average pastorate in this country is 12 months or less. The average pastorate in the Pentecostal Holiness Church is 24 months, which is nothing to run around the house about, but we can shout because we're twice the national average. You don't build a great church in 24 months. You build a great church by coming to stay. And thank you, Pastor, for 21 years of investing your life. Would you stand and give the man of God a hand? I believe the only other thing he wanted me to tell you was, uh, <laughs> don't forget to keep them tithes and offerings coming. <laughs> uh, it's such a joy to be with you. I, I'm so blessed. Uh, I get to travel around all the time. It's not always a blessing. But you don't have to be anywhere very long if you've got any kind of spiritual sensitivity. All you have to do is run up the antenna, pick up the vibes, and I can be somewhere 10 minutes or less and tell you if anything's going on. You just know, you can tell. If you've ever experienced the quickening presence of resurrection power, you know when it's evident somewhere. And you know when it's obviously not evident somewhere. And you can't, reproduce that with music, drama, or anything else. You can manifest it through music, drama, and many other means, but you can't produce it with that. You not only have excellence in your ministry, and it is excellent ministry, but there is the presence of the kind of power they were singing about today, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. 
There's resurrection power here today. That's what changes lives. That's what saves marriages. That's what causes alcoholics to put down the bottle. It causes drug addicts to drop the needle. Is resurrection power. And I thank God it's just refreshing to be in a place where his presence is so obvious. It's a joy to have my wife. It's always a joy. She doesn't get to travel with me all the time. But she's my childhood sweetheart. Met when we were 14 years old. Fell in love with her. First time I ever saw her because I got really good taste. <laughs> and she had really long blonde hair. And I looked to the guy standing beside me. This is God's truth. Walked in the door. I said, that's the girl I'm going to marry right there. And... Um, Two years later, at the age, at the old age of 16 years old, I gave her a diamond, and we were engaged as juniors in high school. And that's such a scary thought. <laughs> Got married, had $32 between the two of us in all this United States world. But it's been a good life. 45 years ago, this past June the 11th. Thank you, honey. Thank you for a wonderful life. I want to share a word with you from Ecclesiastes. Turn with me there, please, to chapter 8. Now, I'm a crier. I usually carry two handkerchiefs to church with me. But I made the mistake of only bringing one today. Somebody got me a box of Kleenex in the last service, so uh, I'll have some help shortly. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. It's also a joy to have my, I call it my aunt, it's kind of odd because she's younger than I am, but it just so happens she is my aunt. Uh, we kind of grew up together, and uh, they're from Nashville. Wayne and Margaret, good to have you here with us today. <laughs> Chapter 8, verse 1, Solomon is writing, and he says, uh, who is as the wise man? In other words, he's saying, what does a wise man look like? If you were trying to go find a wise man, what would you be looking for? Who is as the wise man? And who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? That's another way of asking the same question. A wise man is a man who knows the interpretation of a thing. A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. In other words, he's saying a wise man is a confident man, and you can see the self-confidence in his countenance. Then he says in verse 2, I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment and that in regard of the oath of God. And he said, now I'm going to tell you, a really wise man will do whatever the king says. That's a mark of wisdom. You will keep the king's commandment and you will keep it just like you would keep an oath to God. Whatever the king says, you do it. 
Then he says in verse 3, and don't be hasty to go out of the king's sight. Stay close to the king. Have a good relationship with the king. Stand not in an evil thing. For he, the king, doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. In other words, don't get caught breaking the law because the king has the power to do whatever he wants to do to make things right. And then he says the reason that's true in verse 4 is because where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what doest thou? Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what doest thou? I want to talk to you about the king's word. See, these, these verses are a little uh, difficult for you and me to really comprehend. We can apprehend them and accept them. But I doubt there's anybody in the audience, including myself, that can really comprehend and fully understand the significance of these verses. The reason is you've never lived under a king. Anybody in here ever lived under a king? You lived in a monarchy or a dictatorship? No. We've spent all of our life in a democracy. We are the products of Western civilization. And it is Western civilization that has given the world its great democracies. You have to understand, however, 3,000 years ago when Solomon wrote these words, the world didn't know anything about democracy. Every nation was ruled by one person, a king or a queen. And if you lived in a monarchy, or we would call it today a dictatorship, they say dictatorship's the most efficient form of government in the world if you got a good dictator. If you lived in a monarchy, you would understand the verse that says, where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what doest thou? You would understand why the wise man said, stay close to the king. Be sure you have a good relationship with the king. Don't do anything that displeases the king. Why? Because a king can do anything he wants to. And nobody can stop him. A king has absolute power. When a king speaks, what he says becomes law. And there's no debate. There's no Congress to debate it. There's no Senate to assign it to a committee. There's no House of Representatives to fund it. When a king speaks, whatever the king says becomes law simply because the king said it. His word 
carries with it the power to do whatever his word declares. The word of a king has within it inherent power to realize itself and fulfill itself. Why? Because the king owns everything. You see, in those days, nobody owned property. The king owned all the property. He allowed people to work the land, and then he got part of the crops. That's the way it worked. So the king has all of the economic power. The king has all of the civil power. The king has all of the political power. The king has all of the military power at his disposal. He can do anything he wants to do, and nobody can stop him. So when the king speaks, his word is final. Where the word of a king is, there is power. The word means authority. It means the right to do whatever he wants to do. There is a power that's the ability to do. There's another power that's the right to do. And this term means the king has the authority, the right to do whatever he wants to do. You remember in Luke's gospel, chapter 7, Jesus is coming into the city of Capernaum where he spent about 80% of his time. And as he walked in through the little winding streets of that tax-collecting city, there was always a crowd because the word was out about his miracles and his teaching. And he always had a crowd walking with him through the streets. And as he meandered through the streets of Capernaum, a group of Jewish elders came running up to him and said, we represent a Roman centurion whose servant is at the point of death. And this Roman officer in the military, over a hundred men, a centurion, has sent us to ask you to heal his servant. And you ought to do it because he's a good man. He has blessed our country and he has built us a synagogue to worship in. So Jesus began following the Jewish elders, making his way to the Roman centurion's house. And as he got close, the Bible says the Roman army officer, not a Jew, a Gentile, this Roman army officer, the centurion, sent some of his servants to say to Jesus, stop. You don't have to come any further. I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. And I didn't feel worthy to even come to you personally and make my request. However, I do understand something about authority. Because I am a man set in authority. I've got folk over me. So I know what it means to have a commanding officer over me in higher rank. And whatever he tells me to do, I do it. He said, however, I'm not only a man under authority, I'm a man in authority. Because I've got soldiers under me. And I say to one soldier, go, and when I say go, he goes. He don't ask me, 
how far, how long, or why. I just say go, and he goes. I say to another servant, come, and he comes. <laughs> and he said, I say to another one, do this. And whatever I tell him to do, he does it. I understand authority. I'm under authority, and I'm in authority. And by the way, there's a great principle there. Nobody who's not willing to be under authority should ever be in authority. He said, I'm under authority, and I'm in authority. I understand that. He said, and I understand that through the stories I've heard, you got some kind of authority. Not military authority, but I've been told that you have authority over demons. And, and you can talk to demons and whatever you tell them to do, they do it. And the word's out that you have authority over sickness and disease, and that when you command it to go, it flees from your presence. I don't understand what kind of authority you got, but I do believe you could stop right where you are in the street. I got enough power in your word that if you will just command my servant to be healed, I think he can be healed here in my house while you speak it over here in the street because I believe in your authority. And Jesus was amazed. He said, I haven't found this kind of faith in any Jew that I've met anywhere in Israel. And here's a, a Gentile Roman centurion who says, I believe in the power of your word. Just stop where you are and say it now and it will be. Where the word of a king is when he speaks, it's going to happen. And you see, you got to understand that this word thing is important with God. Look at the creation account, Genesis 1. You're going to see two terms over and over again. God said, God called. God said, God called. God saw the darkness, didn't like it. God said, let there be light. That was light. And then God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And there was a firmament, and God called the firmament heaven. God said, God called. My question is why? Who's he talking to? There ain't nobody there. See, you got to understand, God didn't have to say anything. All God had to do was will it. He didn't have to roll up his sleeves. He didn't work up a sweat. All he had to do was will light into existence, and it would have been. So why did he bother to speak it? It's because even in the very beginning, God is trying to establish the principle of the word for you and for me. God works through words. Words are important to God. When he was ready to complete the redemptive process on planet Earth, what do we read in John 1? In the beginning was the 
Word, that's Jesus, the Logos of God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then the Word is made manifest in verse 14 and dwells among us. Jesus, the Word, comes down to live among us and redeem us from sin. It was the Word in creation. It was the Word in redemption. The Hebrew writer tells us that by faith we know the very worlds were framed by the Word of God. He's trying to establish for us the important principle that he works through words. Now, I got a $20 bill here. It's really no good. It's, it's good for nothing. However, I'm going to drop it on the floor, and if you come down here to get it, I'm going to step on your hand. <laughs> it's just a green piece of paper. That's all it is. It has absolutely no value whatsoever. It's not worth any more than a green piece of paper you'd pick up in the children's Sunday school class. Now, if you'd had one of these about 40 years ago, you could have gotten one at the top that would have said silver certificate. Anybody ever seen a silver, some of the older folk have, yeah. You could even have gotten one that said gold certificate. Looked the same way, but at the top right here it said gold certificate. Silver certificate. You know what that meant? That meant you could have taken that $20 bill to your bank and they were obligated to give you $20 worth of gold for it. If you had a silver certificate, they had to give you $20 worth of silver because America was on the gold standard and every dollar was backed up by gold at Fort Knox. Now, President Richard Nixon took us off of the gold standard, which meant there was no gold supporting this paper anymore. So you can produce all of these you want to produce. See, before you couldn't produce any more than the gold you had to back it up. Once we were disconnected from the gold standard, the paper became worthless. In fact, there's only one thing that makes this paper valuable. The paper is called currency. Currency means you can take this piece of paper unlike this piece of paper. They're both paper. They both come from trees. The difference between this piece of paper and this piece of paper is not what it's made out of. It's the fact that the federal government says you can take this one down to the service station and put it on the counter, and they have to give you $20 worth of something for it. Gas, bread, whatever. The only thing that makes this of any value is the promise of the government behind it that you can take it somewhere and put it on the counter and get something for it. If the government of America collapsed today, you could have a house full of $20 bills and you could build a fire with them. They wouldn't be worth the paper they're printed on. Now, some of you younger folk are looking at me like a calf looking at a new gate. That's your economics 101. Just the power of the federal government. This represents a promise. 
the government says you can take it and they'll swap it out for you. It is legal tender. It's currency. It is a means of exchange. That's what currency is. I'll exchange this for gasoline. I'll exchange this for some groceries. If you forget everything else I say this morning, remember this. Words, the $20 bill of heaven. Words are the currency of heaven. See, when you pray and you ask God for something, whether you understand the transaction or the dynamics of it or not, doesn't matter. It doesn't change the transaction. God doesn't give you what you ask for. What he will do is give you a word so you can take the word and exchange it for what you need. See, most of us pray out of a problem. Isn't that true? 80% of all praying is prayer that's done out of a problem. My boyfriend wants to break up with me, so that'll really drive you to your knees. You might thank God one day that God didn't answer your prayer for that fellow. You like the old country song, thank God for unanswered prayers. My refrigerator went out this morning, so now I'm praying, asking God for a new compressor in my refrigerator. Transmission went out in my car, so now I'm on my knees praying, God, I got to have 1,500 bucks put a new transmission in my car. Our problems drive us to our knees. However, what happens as a result of that is when you pray, you're so focused on your problem and God giving you a response to deal with your problem that you might miss what he's trying to say to you. You won't see the forest of God's blessing for the tree of your problem that you're focused on when you're praying. So you're praying for a new compressor for the refrigerator. And God gives you a promise while you're praying. It just happens to run through your mind. I remember you said that my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. There it is. That's your $20 piece of currency. Now, what you going to do with it? <laughs> the moment you believe that promise and apply it to your situation, it becomes a means of exchange for God to give you what he has to give you in answer to your prayers. However, let me make you aware of the fact that usually God wants to give you more than what you ask him for. That's another reason you need to thank God sometime that you don't get what you're praying for because one of the reasons God don't answer your prayer the way you pray it is because he's got more for you than what you're asking for. And he says, no, if I give them that, I can't give them this, so I'm going to withhold that so I can give them this. Because, see, God don't want to give you a compressor to fix an old refrigerator. God wants to give you a new refrigerator, but you're so focused on the compressor, you can't believe God for a new refrigerator. 
God don't want to give you a transmission job. He wants to give you a better car, but you're so focused on getting the transmission fixed that you can't focus on getting another car. So we're praying out of our problem, absorbed with our problem. God wants to do so much more than what we're asking for that sometimes he has to stretch us. Have you ever heard anybody say anyone can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed? That's a powerful statement. Anybody can cut an apple open and count the seeds in it. But if you hold up a seed, who knows how many apples are in that seed? It could be one apple, one apple tree, an acre of an apple grove, or 10 acres of an apple grove. Only God can count the apples in a seed. Anybody can count the seeds in an apple. And when God answers prayer based on your believing his word, and you put his word down in exchange for what you feel you need, what he's going to give you is a seed. You're going to hear something. You're going to feel something. But what God wants to do is so much bigger than what you hear. It's so much bigger than what you see when you're praying. I, has anybody ever been there? You do understand when God speaks, he's saying a lot more than you're hearing. When God talks, he's got a lot more in mind than the little bit you see. God's word always contains more breakthrough, more victory, more fruit, more power, more authority, more everything than you possibly could see when you first hear it. So when God's talking to you, he wants to do something big and we're so focused with our small stinking thinking that he has to work to increase our capacity to believe him to do something bigger. Now, that's the very reason when you get a word from God about anything, nine times out of 10, your circumstances will immediately get worse. You ever been there? <laughs> if you haven't, hold on. You in for the thrill of your life. The moment you get a word from God about anything, your circumstances are going downhill. I can tell you that. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Joseph was doing really fine until he got a word from God. The moment he got a word from God and confessed it to his brothers, they wanted to kill him. They put him in a pit. They sold him as a slave. The man wound up in prison before he ever got to the palace and he saw the word of God fulfilled. God said, one day your brothers will bow before you. Yeah, he just didn't tell him he's going to be in a pit, going to be in prison before he got there. Why does that happen? Why does that happen? Now, this is a great part of the country. I'm from North Carolina. My wife and I uh, moved to South Carolina three months after we got married and lived there until we moved to Oklahoma. So I'm, I really spent most of my adult life in South Carolina, but that's a great part of the country too. And if you ask most folk in North or South Carolina, which season of the year do you like best? 
winter, summer, spring, or fall. Nine times out of ten, it's going to be either spring or fall. I don't know a lot of folks that really summer's their favorite season or winter's their favorite season. It's fall or spring. Why? Perfect time. Yeah, you can turn the air conditioner off. Save power. Open the windows. It's just a great time, great temperature. In the springtime, everything's turning green. Life is coming back. It's a beautiful season of the year. Fall, all the colors are coming out, and we ride up in the mountains, and we look at all of the changing colors. Beautiful time of the year. The two most beautiful seasons of the year, the two most comfortable seasons of the year, are the two stormiest seasons of the year. You have hurricanes in the fall and tornadoes in the spring. So see, if you aren't really careful, you could let the stormy weather convince you that you're not in a good season. But in reality, the two best seasons of your life may contain the worst storms you will ever encounter. So you can't judge your season by your storm. Question, why do I have storms when I get a word from God? Good question. The answer is storms stretch you. Storms increase your ability to believe God. Storms increase your capacity for faith. If you can trust him through the storm, you can trust him. And when your capacity to believe God is increased, your ability to receive all of the big things God has for your life is present then. God wants to do something big, but he's got to stretch your mind so it'll be big enough to receive the seed of the word that he's put in your heart. Because the word God put in your heart is bigger than what you can believe with your mind. Does that make any kind of sense? And the storms will increase your ability for your mind to catch up with your heart. You remember when the, the widow went to Elisha and she said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I got two sons. My husband's dead. The creditors are coming to take my sons and they're going to become slaves. And Elisha said, what have you got? She said, all I've got is a little oil in a pot. He said, I want you to go through the town and I want you to get every pot you can find and bring it back to your house. Got every pot they could find in town, brought it back to the widow's house and her and her two sons started pouring oil. And out of that little cruise of oil came more oil and more oil and they filled up every pot they had. And when they filled up the last pot, the oil stopped flowing. The only thing that limited the flow of the oil was the capacity to receive it. When there were no more pots, there was no more oil. Jesus spoke to Peter walking by the seaside after his resurrection. And Peter was trying to figure out if that was really Jesus or if that was some type of image or mirage or whatever. And Jesus spoke in a familiar voice and he said, cast your nets on the right side. 
N-E-T-S, plural. The Bible says Peter cast his N-E-T. See, he'd already told Jesus he'd been fishing all night, hadn't caught anything. I'm the fisherman in the crowd, not you. I'm telling you, there's no fish here. Jesus said, just cast your nets on, on the right side. So rather than go to a lot of unnecessary work, he just threw out one net. And all of a sudden, that one net was filled with 153 fish. So much so that he had to get help from some friends to pull that thing in. And he realized all of a sudden he was talking to Jesus. Now, what would have happened if he'd have thrown out two nets? He'd have had two nets full of fish. What would have happened if he'd have thrown out three nets? He'd have had three nets full of fish. Same principle. The only thing that limited the number of fish he caught was the number of nets he threw out. His capacity to receive was the only limitation to his little fishing expedition. And sometimes God wants to do so much more than we have a capacity to receive because of our small mindsets. So in order to enable us to receive what he really wants to do, the word that he's given us and experience the fullness of that word, he has to work in our mind, not in our heart, in our mind to enable us to believe him for what he wants to do in our life. And that's where the storms come in. And whenever God speaks a word to you, most of the time we will react like Mary reacted when the angel Gabriel came and announced to her that she's going to have a child. She was only 14 years old. She was an unwed mother, by the way. Unwed mother. And the angel announces and says, Hail Mary, thou art highly favored of the Lord. You got to watch that when you're favored of the Lord because that can wind up being a really hard life sometimes. She was pregnant. She rode on a donkey nine months pregnant for a 60-mile trip. Wound up having the baby in a barn. That's a pretty tough life. And she was favored of the Lord. Thou art highly favored of the Lord. The Lord is with thee. And you're going to conceive a child and you're going to call his name Jesus. And he's going to be great, going to be the son of the highest. And God's going to give him the throne of his father, David. And he'll rule over the house of Israel forever and of his kingdom there'll be no end. And her question was the same question you asked the last time God gave you a word and all of a sudden it looks so big and your ability to receive it looks so small. Your first question was, how shall these things be? Lord, I know me. I can't do this. I know where I come from. I don't have this in me. You need to give this word to somebody else. How shall these things be? 
And the angel spoke back and said, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. That was the angel saying, don't you worry about it. If you'll provide God the who, God will take care of the how. Because the how is going to be a miracle. This is not going to be something you're going to do. This is a word that is going to take the Holy Ghost to produce in your life. The Holy Ghost will come upon thee. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. And therefore, that child that's going to be born from you will be called the Son of God. And then the angel said this. He said, in case you got any doubts about my master's ability to carry it out, just want you to know that your cousin Elizabeth, who's been barren all her life, and is an elderly woman, she is now six months pregnant with what will become the cousin of your child. Because with God, nothing shall be impossible. That phrase in the Greek, nothing shall be impossible. It's just three words. Uk, rhema, adunamis. Nothing shall be impossible. Uk means nothing. Rhema is words, so you put them together, it means no word thing. See, that's what you got. Adunamis means without power. So what's the angel saying? The angel is saying, if God said it, you can count on it. Because no word thing from God is without power. <laughs> Mary got it. She said, oh, I understand now. Be it unto me according to thy word. <laughs> Give me that word thing. Give me that thing with the power. I believe in the word thing. Be it unto me according to to thy word. When God speaks, don't let the storms that you see around you cheat you out of the fullness of what he has spoken to you. When God speaks, it is the initiation of a new season in your life based on that word. Stand with me, will you? Every new day begins in darkness. The Jewish day begins at six o'clock in the evening, not six o'clock in the morning. The Julian calendar day that we go by begins at 12 o'clock midnight.
So tonight at 12 o'clock, we will begin a new day. But I guarantee you, if you were standing out here on this construction site, tonight at midnight, you wouldn't know the difference between 11.59 p.m. and 12.01 a.m. Because everything looks the same way at 12.01 a.m. that it does at 11.59 p.m. It's just dark. You can't look around you and realize that a new day just dawned a minute ago. Unless you got a chronometer on your wrist, something that measures time. And though I look around me and everything is still dark, when I look down at my watch, it says, now, nah, it's Monday now. It's not Sunday anymore. You might still be sick, but that don't mean that a new day hadn't started in your life. God spoke a word of healing to you. You might look at the books of your business tomorrow and they're still going backwards. Everything still looks the same, but it don't mean that a, a new day can't start today with a word from God in your life. Because as the day goes on, the light grows greater and the details become more clear. I believe there are folk here who have locked up within them promises from the past. I believe there are lots of people carrying words from God and you don't know what to do with them. You were praying and he spoke it and you've just been carrying it within you. You haven't seen it realized yet, but you haven't turned it loose. You're still holding on to it. I had a friend, she's going on to be with Jesus now. She prayed for her husband to get saved for 40 years. She had a promise when she was a young girl that God was gonna save her husband. She held on to that for 40 years. And he finally gave his heart to God six years before he died. And she came, we would talk, and she said, Ronnie, it's like having a new husband. He was verbally abusive, uh, somewhat physically abusive. She said, now he just walks in and he puts his arm around me, comes up behind me and kisses me on the neck. And then he'll start crying and say, honey, I'm just so sorry. I wasted 40 years 
Wound up being the janitor of the church. Lived six years and died with leukemia and went to heaven. But a lady who carried a promise, she never let it go for 40 years. She believed what the Lord said. And I just sense there are a lot of promises being carried around in this congregation. Maybe God spoke to you about your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your job, whatever it may be. And I want to activate that promise in your life today. See, impartation is not me giving you what I got. I can't give you what I got. You can't give me what you got. But impartation is the anointing in my life touching the anointing in your life and activating something inside of you. And that's what I want to do in this closing prayer. If you're here today and you feel like you're carrying a promise that God has made you in the past, you haven't seen it realized yet, but you're still holding on to it. Would you just hold up your hand? Some others. Just keep your hand up. Keep it up. I'm going to stretch out my hand and pray for you. And like lightning rods all over this congregation, the power of God will activate that word. You gave him the who, now he's going to take care of the how and bring it to pass. Father, I speak it today in the name of Jesus. For these who've lifted their hands, they have a word. They believe it. They see a portion of it. And what they see, they receive. Help them to understand what they see is only a small token of what the word contains. But based on the word that they've received and what they see, I speak to it today. And through the anointing of the Spirit, I activate that promise in their life. And may it rise to the surface. May this be the day when the hands go from 1159 p.m. to midnight and a new day dawns in the life of their son. A new day dawns in the life of their daughter. A new day dawns in the life of that husband or wife or in the condition of that family. Today May the new season begin of a realized promise in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Ghost. And everybody said, Amen. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you have the greatest problem of all. 
You heard the pastor say, when I was 16 years old, I gave my heart to Christ. What he didn't tell you was, I played in a rock and roll band for three years before I got saved. All over eastern North Carolina. Made really good money. Couldn't spend it because I wasn't even old enough to date. I was playing with men who were 30 and 40 years old. I was 13, 14. And it was that one thing. I told them I was among the folk. I didn't cuss, drink, smoke, or chew. Didn't run around with them to do. But I love the music and I love the money. And as a kid, just 13 and 14, I was making a week's salary of people working in a factory two hours a week. And I had to deal with it in my life to ever get right with God. And so many times I would go to the altar and say, Lord, I, I know I need to be saved, but I can't do both. And I fought that battle for years. Just a child. Child ought not to have to kind of fight those battles. Until one Monday night, not too far from right here, I said, Lord, none of that matters anymore. I want you more than I want that. I uh, turned in my currency. I had a promise that if I confessed my sins, he would forgive me of my sins. And I said, I believe that, Lord. And I did confess, and I was saved. I lost my job. I was making 40 and 50 bucks a week for two hours, and I went to work for $12.29 a week to serve God. Just a kid, 14 years old, 15. But see, if you don't have Jesus, none of the rest of the stuff matters. And you'll never get the fullness of any promise in your life until you get the promiser first. So I want us all to pray together today the sinner's prayer. And if you're here and you're not saved, if you'll pray this prayer, when we finish, you're going to be a Christian. And I want you to go to that guest welcome center right to my left in the back and pick up this packet. And you do whatever it tells you to do, and that'll give you the next step in your Christian life. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for proving it when you died on Calvary. I'll never doubt your love. I've tried it my way. It didn't work. I need help. I confess my sin. I repent. I accept you today as my Savior and my Lord. And with your help and by your grace, 
I'm going to live for you from this day forward. In Jesus' name. Now give Jesus a hand. He's worthy. And before you sit down, I want you to turn around to two folk and look them right straight in the eye and say, I'm going to do something great for God. How about you? Amen. 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 Right before you go, church, right before you go, listen, let me ask you a question. Did he bring a word to us today? Listen, don't, don't treat this lightly. Don't treat this lightly. Some of you, many of you, most of you, if not all of you, this is a message directly to your life, and it is a key. It is a key to unlocking blessing in your life you haven't experienced. I'm asking you. You know, we go to church. I know everybody's like, it's time to leave. I got to go. I got to get in you. I got. And I'm telling you, we're missing stuff. Don't you go away from here thinking that was a nice sermon, never heard it put that way before. That was a word from the king, from the Lord, through this man today. Now, I've got some more good news for you. That isn't what he preached in the other service. He preached an entirely different sermon, and you need it too. So we've got it online, recorded. I'm telling you that. If you're battling with your image, self-image, you're battling with believing and, and knowing that God values you, don't you miss the sermon he preached in the early service. And you go tell the people that were at the early service, when they start bragging about how he preached, you go, that won't nothing. You have to have been in the second service. And you tell them to get this message. We're going to put this CD uh, packed together because I believe God sent our bishop here to give us a word today. Two words, two powerful words. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you so much. You have blessed our church today, my brother. You've blessed us. If you're a guest here today, we have a gift for you right there. If you're investigating this whole Jesus thing, maybe you prayed that prayer today. Right over here on this side, you pick up the information packet on your way out. I want to remind our guys that we have to flip the sanctuary. <laughs> Pastor Andy's excited because he wants you to help him. We have to flip the sanctuary and turn it into a banquet hall because we're going to feed the military on Thanksgiving Day. So guys, every one of you who can, I know, I know, I know, but every one of you who can hang around, help us flip the sanctuary and turn it into a banquet hall. God bless you. Happy Thanksgiving. Come by and tell the bishop how much you appreciate that word today. <laughs>